Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Joshua 18 through 23. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them by going to bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. Once again, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase sk dash capital O capital T. I check these questions every single week to make sure that uh, I can speak to each one of them. I don't know that I can always give an answer, but I can at least give a response. Uh, So I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions that come up during the course of your reading. We have nearly finished the book of Joshua. We have one chapter left. And in this nearly final section of the book of Joshua, we see several instances in which the author explicitly names the surety of God's promises. And I think we need this surety. We need to be reminded that God's promises are trustworthy because over and over again, God commits to the people of Israel. We see this, and we have seen this throughout the Hebrew Bible so far. And over and over again, the people of Israel fail to trust God's commitment to them. And this is true for us as well as God's people in this day, despite God proving trustworthy throughout history and through much of our lives. It's incredibly difficult to believe that God is still trustworthy while watching the horrors of life unfold. Whether that's something as dire as a parent, sibling, or child dying. Whether that's something like the loss of a job, or whether it's something that maybe seems small, but is a really big deal, like the hurtful words of a spouse or a friend. Or maybe it's just the the normal, everyday, in and out of life that causes you to wonder, is God good? Is God really there? And yet, in spite of these tragic circumstances, God is faithful still, and God does not forget us. Remember that this entire narrative cycle from Exodus all throughout Joshua was spurred on by the cries of God's people in Exodus 2, and that God heard and responded to their pain. All of this also begins to set up and foreshadow the way that God will respond to the deep pain of sin and death in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the same way that God does that for us, God will hear and respond to whatever pain you as an individual may be facing also. So with this in mind, let's get into our text for this week. We'll start in Joshua 18 and and 19 and look at, at those somewhat together. And we'll continue our practice of reading Joshua a little bit allegorically. And we can see if we do this, we see in the failure of the seven tribes to take their land, the human temptation to begin a job without enduring through to the finish line. We might see this in our own lives. We, maybe we have a victory over sin or the brokenness we know we struggle with. Or maybe we start a project at work and, and, and really get excited about it until suddenly you know, it gets tough. And, and maybe in, in, instead of uh, pushing and, and trying to grind and, and, and keep moving against the sin or, or in, in this project, instead of taking the next steps to conquer it completely and totally, we pause And we celebrate our success as if we've already completed the task at hand. When we do this, we risk not finishing the job that God has tasked us with. Uh, we, We risk perhaps not 
doing our best on in, in that project at work or or we risk not failing to through the power of the holy spirit conquer that sinful nature which enslaves us and it's true also just in the same way that uh, it was seven tribes that needed to claim their land and only five had claimed their land oftentimes it's when we're not quite halfway through a project that we think oh man we're really rolling uh we're gonna do this the rest of our lives and and suddenly it gets tiring. It gets hard. When that happens, push through. Get the get those seven tribes to claim their land, the second half of the work to get done. And we also see this strange mix of allocating land based on need and size of these tribes, as well as allocating land based on casting lots, chance. It's like a roll of the dice. This reflects the providence of God, that God is Lord both over skill on the one hand and chance on the other. And it also reminds us that chance is a part of life. We cannot predict anything and everything with full certainty. For example, the tribe of Simeon was given pockets in, of land in the midst of Judah, while the tribe of Dan was given land that they would eventually be chased out of, and they'd have to go move up to, to, to the north end of Israel. I've included three different maps in the links uh, to, this, to this podcast, and you can, ch- you can uh, uh, compare and contrast these maps with one another. It's interesting how Israel kind of evolves or how uh, we try and, and, and draw these boundaries in order to make some sense of them. See, there's going to be times that you believe that God has put you in an unfair position where the roll of the dice of life doesn't seem to go your way. In these times, know that where you start isn't necessarily where you are meant to finish and that God doesn't always take the most efficient route from beginning to end. For example, when I was graduating from high school, I was choosing between going to become a pastor and going to become a math teacher. And I chose to go and be trained as a mathematician to become a math teacher. And and God uses that still in how I think and in how I interact with folks. And yet God still has called me to be a pastor. God doesn't take the most efficient route from A to B. Note even that the tribe of Judah, which was given a massive swath of land, was not given the future capital, Jerusalem. This was Benjamin's inheritance. Yet, this wouldn't prevent the tribe of Judah, under David's leadership, from taking the city from the Jebusites and building Israel's capital there. And I want to note also that uh, up until this point in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel have gathered at Gilgal. This is a city right after you cross the Jordan. But now, Shiloh in chapter 19, has become the city in which the Israelites gather. Uh, In the maps that I've included, you'll notice that Shiloh is further west of the Jordan. It's further into the promised land. It may reflect a growing comfort the Israelites have in the land belonging to them. Shiloh also will become uh, the, the spot where it may not necessarily be the ark that's put there, but that's the spot that sacrifices are made uh, beginning in, in Samuel. So Shiloh has this history. We see also in Joshua 19 that after having allocated all of the tribes who get land uh, to, to, to those tribes, Joshua then takes his portion of land last. 
there are times that leaders need to lead from the front. There are other times leaders need to lead from the back. Oftentimes when you're leading from the front, it's because you want to show those who are following you that you're willing to charge into a dangerous situation or to an exhausting situation. You're willing to do what you're asking of others. Whereas there are other times that leaders are called to lead from behind. Uh, and when receiving the spoils of victory, great leaders tend to lead from behind, allowing their followers to claim spoils first. There's a little bit of a hiccup in this with Joshua, which we'll get to uh, in, a, in a couple of chapters. When we get to Joshua 20, we get this uh, uh, review of the cities of refuge. Now, cities of refuge have been legislated at least two times prior to this in Israel's law, but they are so important that a chapter is dedicated to them here, even though it's a, a short chapter. There was a practice in Israel at this time that if a family member was killed, Another member of the family, brother, uh, father, uncle usually, uh, would need to avenge the slain person by killing the one responsible for their death. It's sort of a, a balance of spilling of blood, that if, if blood is spilt unnecessarily, if there's not any sort of like war going on and, and you end up killing somebody, whether through murder or manslaughter, then that blood was unjustly spilt. And in order for the earth to be satisfied, uh, the, the killer's blood must also be spilt, was sort of the, the cultural understanding. So this blood avenger, as it's called, or the avenger of blood, could not take the life of a person who would come under the protection of a city of refuge. In one sense, this is an early idea of offering asylum prior to a trial, noting that the court of public opinion isn't as trustworthy as a judicial system. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for avenger in the phrase avenger of blood is the same word that's used for kinsman redeemer a term that's going to become quite important in the story of Ruth. It's the Hebrew word goel. And this literally means to act as a kinsman or, or one who does the part of a kinsman. The goel preserves the life of the family, redeeming it from the power of death, whether through avenging blood from somebody who had killed advertently or inadvertently a member of the family, or uh, uh, they'd, they'd redeem, they'd preserve the life of the family by, and redeem it from the power of death by maintaining the line of a widow whose husband had passed away. Again, this is going to become a very important idea uh, in Ruth, uh, is, is where it's most explicitly expounded. But as we continue reading through the Hebrew Bible, we're going to see this come up in some respects sort of obtusely. Uh, even at this point, there are evident seeds of the work that Jesus is going to do on our behalf in being our goel, joining us, acting as a kinsman to us, redeeming us from the power of sin and death. Even at this point, with the Israelites uh, uh, wreaking havoc on the Canaanites, according to Joshua, there is on the horizon the opportunity of redemption. And this is what we look forward to in Jesus. Continuing on in the book of Joshua, we, we look at Joshua chapter 21. And one question God's people 
ask in a variety of ways throughout history is whether God is faithful. This is uh, similar to asking about the surety of God's promises. And we often see this question posed by the prophets. Uh, and, and this is for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, prophets are sort of the go-between. They're the mouthpiece of the people to God and the mouthpiece of God to the people. And so they are bringing the people's concerns to God along with convicting the people with God's concerns. But we also see this in prophets, I think, because they see quite evidently the work of God in other people's lives. But they don't always see so clearly the way God has touched their own lives. And perhaps the Levites, the priests of that time, felt this way too, seeing Joshua take care of all the other tribes and even himself before looking toward their well-being. This is the exception I was talking about in how Joshua led from behind. But we see here that while the priests or the pastors or the clergy people, or in this case the Levites, might be the last to receive their reward, God will always be faithful to those who give the Lord service. A mentor of mine once said that God is not always gentle with the people on the front lines of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, but God is always faithful. I think this is one of the good promises that God made to the people of Israel, that God makes to us. One of those promises we can trust will come to pass, that God's word is sure and trustworthy. In the last three chapters of Joshua, we get a little bit more narrative, and we'll cover two of those today uh, and one of them next week. In Joshua 22, we have this interesting story of the two and a half tribes that are uh, living on the other side of the Jordan. We call them Transjordan tribes, uh, even though they're you know living to the east of the Jordan, so we could call them Eastern tribes. Uh, whatever the case, uh, tradition has called them Transjordan tribes. And, and these two and a half tribes uh, had promised, you may remember, uh, when Moses gave them an inheritance on the other side of the Jordan, they promised they would go in with the rest of Israel to invade the promised land uh, so, that the rest of, so that they're not sitting on the sidelines and getting comfy while the rest of Israel is driving out Canaanites. So now that the rest of Israel has more or less subdued the promised land, they're able to return to their, their homes, their uh, tribal um, inheritances on the other side of the Jordan. And when they get there, they build an altar. And the story about this altar seems a little strange. Uh, I think that there's uh, several pieces of information that are just assumed that the reader will know. First, Shiloh, uh, as we talked about a little bit before, seems to be the understood central location to sacrifice to God. Shiloh has taken over the function of the tabernacle that the Israelites brought with them in the wilderness, that this is where the sacrifices happen, this is where worship of God happens, and, and, and that means, second, that anyone who wants to participate in worship must travel to Shiloh. Setting up another sacrificial altar may, intentionally or not, compete with the altar at Shiloh and be seen as idolatry, as worship of another god besides the Lord Yahweh. Recall also that these Transjordan tribes who live east of the Jordan risk being seen as step-siblings to the quote-unquote true Israel, which inherited the proper promised land. I think many of us have experienced this before, where we feel like the outsiders, 
where there's an us and a them, and we feel like the them. And we want to do whatever we can to be part of us. Particularly during the course of the pandemic, it may have been a, a, a temptation for some of you to think, you know, it seems pretty obvious that my church would get along just fine without me. I'm not really a valued part of the community. And once we start thinking that way, we start thinking of ourselves as not part of God's people. These aren't fears that always arise when we're able to worship together in one sacred place. Uh, But for those of you who have had to stay at home in worship throughout the pandemic, it may have been difficult to deal with this. It may have felt like you are the them instead of the us. And the Transjordan tribes may have felt this way too. For them to, to go to Shiloh and all worship together in one place... They would need to walk several miles. They'd need to cross the Jordan. They'd need to walk several more miles before even getting to the altar of worship, let alone uh, having a sacrifice to bring there, to uh, engage in worship. Sensing the possibility that they might be forgotten, they decide, well, we're going to put up a reminder to the other nine and a half tribes that, hey, we worship the same God. And when they're confronted about this, what's interesting is that they respond gently, kindly. When they lay their cards out on the table, when they are vulnerable with the other tribal heads and with the high priest, a national crisis is averted. And I think this shows the power of thoughtfully and intentionally responding instead of just offering a knee-jerk response to, the, to a challenge from someone who, who reaches out to you. Such a soft startup, I guess you could call it, or a gentle answer can set the conversation on the right foot and turn away possible wrath. And with all of the really polarizing conversations we can be having in our national discourse right now, both about the pandemic and otherwise, my encouragement to you is do what you can to offer gentle answers to those who may challenge you, valuing the person more than the position. Finally, in Joshua 23, uh, Joshua begins offering some last words to the people of Israel, and Joshua assures the people that God's word is trustworthy and true. And he does this not just in an encouraging way, but also in a warning way. The promises for flourishing are true, but also the threats of destruction. Israel has thrived thus far, but only because they have kept the commandments of God. This has been the driving idea behind both the book of Joshua and the book of Deuteronomy, that uh, you choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the Lord or will you serve yourselves? Israel must expect God to remain faithful to God's word. And if Israel does trust that God will remain faithful to God's word, Israel will trust that the blessings of obedience will come to them and the curses for disobedience will come as well. In this way, Joshua is almost an extended commentary on the choice we have and the Israelites had between Mount Gerizim on the one hand and Mount Ebel on the other. You may remember them from the end of Deuteronomy, the beginning of Joshua. 
But these rewards for obedience and punishments for disobedience don't come in the way that the prosperity gospel preachers suggest. It's not proof that you are in God's favor if you're getting healthy, wealthy, and wise, nor is it proof that God has not favored you if you're not healthy or wealthy. No, see, the moral arc of God's universe bends toward justice, but it doesn't always do so in the most efficient manner. There are some times that God does not take that God does not take the direct route from point A to point B even though God's people may be fully obedient. Even though for a time it might seem like God leaves the wicked unpunished or the righteous unrewarded, this will not be the just righteous kingdom that God uh, will will bring into existence here on earth just as it, just as it is in heaven. That's all for Joshua 18 through 23. Next week, we're going to read Joshua 24 along with Judges 1 through 5, where we bid a final farewell to Joshua, the great general that began the incursion into the promised land. And we're going to begin to wade through the questionable morality along with the violence of the book of Judges. And one other note, as we go through the book of Judges, I would offer readers a content warning. There are graphic levels of violence, dismemberment, sexual assault. All of these are described in this bloody retelling of Israel's pre-monarchal period. So if that disturbs you and it's difficult for you to read, feel free to take a few weeks off. Join us as we begin Ruth later in July. But for the time being, may God bless you in your reading of Scripture.